listen up. This is Brother G2. The greatest weakness of any oppressor is that they always underestimate the oppressed. So I'm encouraging everybody. We need you to invest in the On The Ground podcast. You can reach us at J4J underscore USA on Twitter. And you can reach us at our website, www.j4jalliance.com. We need you all to get with us every Monday night as we celebrate being on the ground. Habarigani, Hotel, Peace, Jumbo. What's happening and what up, though? This is your man, once again, Brother G2, host of the On the Ground podcast. This is the space where we lift up the artistic science and community organizing, and we deal with issues that our people are facing on the ground. On this podcast, you will not get politically correct conduct. You will get the truth about what is happening in our communities, and you will hear from the people that are moving to make change. Too often, this system teaches us that there's nothing we can do, that it's hopeless, that you have to be some type of supernatural, super activist in order to make change. But we understand that the reality is we have to create our space to build power. We have to realize, as Ella Baker said, that everybody can be a leader, that any person, regardless of their income, has the ability to see the world for what it is, to see the world around them, analyze it for how they fit in the world, and move to change it. So that's our philosophy. That's what we believe in. And we like to lift up on this podcast those folks that are clear on issues and moving to make change. The theme of our show today is You Must Learn. And we are going to talk about the purge of Black teachers across the United States. What we see happening in classrooms across the United States is that schools, the teaching force is getting younger and wider, and it is not reflective of the body of students that are in the classroom. Despite the fact that we have tons of research that says that children do better when they are taught by people that look like them. We see teachers that are younger, wider, transient in our schools, and our young people suffering as a result. But we want to we connect that to a bigger question as to what's happening to black cities around the United States. So we're going to get into it today. And I have two warrior queens with me. These two sisters are amazing. They are powerful, committed, fierce, brave, bold, brilliant black women that made their life children. They decided a long time ago that they weren't going to be an accountant. They weren't going to be a corporate attorney. They weren't going to be a hedge funder. They weren't going to be a real estate agent. They decided that I was going to make my life the development of the next generation. First, I'd like to introduce my sister, Okaya Kaur, who is from New Jersey. And Okaya Kaur is, one, a member of Parents Unified for Local School Education Pulse, but also a key organizer in the Black Lives Matter at School uh, movement. And so what's happening? Okaya Kaur, how you doing, sister? How are you? I'm doing well. Good, good. And then we have my sister, Tyra Stamps. And Tyra Stamps is a warrior who is a member of the Chicago Teachers Union, but has been a fierce uh, fighter for justice. She's a movement baby. Her mother is the ancestor, Marion Stamps, who was a legendary community organizer in the Cabrini Green Housing Projects. I've seen pictures of Tyra as a little girl with Afro puffs out there with her mama in the streets. 
but she is carried on that tradition and she is a force in the city of Chicago and a voice that I believe in my heart has to be heard. So good morning, Queen. How you doing? Peace. Good morning. I'm doing excellent good. and uh, getting better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Before we jump into it, and thank you all for joining me this morning, I want to just do a member spotlight. Um, as you all know, every podcast, we lift up a member of the Journey for Justice Alliance who is making change and needs to be known by you. So the group that we want to lift up today is Grassroots Arkansas, which is a community organization in Little Rock, Arkansas, that is focused on education and racial justice. The co-director of Grassroots Arkansas is a sister, Reverend Dr. Anika Whitfield. They are a powerful community-based organization that right now is in the middle of a crisis. I don't know if you all heard, but Little Rock, Arkansas, as we may know, is the home of uh, Central High School, which was desegregated by nine brave, bold, and beautiful young people in 1957, because despite the passage of Brown v. Board, there was a movement across the United States to not adhere to that mandate. And so in Little Rock, Black students were not allowed to go to this well-resourced high school. So nine students endure torture. I want you all to understand that. Nine students who only wanted to go to school, a school where they had bathrooms on the inside, a school where they had chalk, a school where they actually had books that were not older than them, a school where they can be in a science lab, only wanted to go to school, they were beaten, they were spit on, they were threatened, they were discriminated against by teachers and staff and parents and students, and they endured that torture to make sure that this school and that school district lived up to the promise. Well, some 65 years after the Little Rock Nine, we know that Little Rock still remains a separate and unequal school district. Now, what happened after the passage of Brown v. Board and after the Little Rock Nine is that the citizens of Little Rock, which is predominantly white, organized to make sure that black families could not get control or power on the school board. But finally, in 2014, black parents, black communities organized to make sure that they had a slate that could begin to bring equity to the forefront. Finally, and in 2015, the state of the 2014, I'm sorry, the state of Arkansas moved to do a state takeover. Now they endured this inequity for decades, right? It celebrated it. But then when black people finally got power on the school board, they took their power away by instituting a state takeover. Well, the five year period of state takeovers where they have to be evaluated is coming up. And so people in Little Rock have been pushing to get their right to elect their school board back. Grassroots Arkansas has built a citywide multiracial coalition that is moving powerfully, targeting the governor, Asa Hutchinson. And what happened is that the State Board of Education just voted. You're not, you're not going to believe what I'm getting ready to say. I couldn't make this up. They just voted to give the white schools back the right to elect their school board, but to keep the black schools under state receivership. And so we are going to need your help in supporting this dynamic group, Grassroots Arkansas. To find out more about what you can do to support, all you have to do is go our Twitter page, 
at J4J underscore USA, and you'll see uh, demands to call Governor Hutchison. Stay tuned, because when we do national social media efforts, we're going to need you. But my sisters and brothers in Grassroots Arkansas, which is an intergenerational organization, they have students that are part of Grassroots Arkansas that actually organize in this school. They have parents and they have elders. They even have a state senator who is like the bomb.com, uh, State Senator Joyce Elliott, who's a member of Grassroots Arkansas. And she's fighting for young people unapologetically. So salute to Grassroots Arkansas. You all keep doing what you're doing. And, uh, you know, Journey for Justice Alliance, we're going to keep plotting with you. And if you need us to come down there and hit the streets, would you be doing that too? So again, salute to Grassroots Arkansas. All right, so let's jump into this. So the first question I have, and let's start with Tara. When did you start teaching and why did you continue teaching despite all the things that are happening uh, in the system today? Honestly, um, I never wanted to teach. I thought I was gonna be the next Oprah Winfrey or the first mm. Tara Stamps to be really honest with you. And that's what I went to school for, and, and that's what my communications was and all of that. However, when I went to Central State HBCU, I left with my degree, but I also left with a, a, a small child, my daughter, Najee Dot. And when I got home, I looked for jobs, I interviewed, and I just couldn't land anything in television. Mm. So my mama said, you need to teach. And I was like, I don't want to teach. And she said, our children need to see you in front of them because you are a success story. You was born and raised in this community. You from Cabrini Green, you from the projects, and you're one of the very few that actually went off to college, came back with a degree, and our children need to see that. And so, you know, my mama is like, it's like God, Jesus, and then my mama. And so I was like, okay, fine. And at that time, they had a program called Teach for Chicago. Not Teach for America, but it was a way to get people who have been in alternative like careers to come into education. So when I came into that like early groups of Teach for Chicago, it was a lot of uh, black teachers that came in from different backgrounds. And so I got my first master's in curriculum and education from Concordia. And actually, I finished up my first semester or second semester, whatever, my first year. It was a two-year program. I got all A's. I still went to the National Black Journalist Conference, but I went like, yeah, I got a job. I came back home. I went to work the first day, August 28, 1996, and I got called to the principal's office. And mm. I said, look, it's the first day of school. I ain't even did nothing yet. Y'all don't even know who I am. And my elementary school principal and my mother's best friend came to get me because my mother had died. Oh, my God. And so... Mm. I buried my mama September 4th, my, me and my sisters, and I went back to work the next week, and I've been at work ever since. And I teaching those brown babies saved my life. Mm. Because whenever I enter a classroom, I enter with her memory. And I enter with her dedication to our people, which was unmatched. And mm. my mother celebrated education and graduations like people celebrate weddings. Like mm. to her, there was no greater accomplishment than seeing young people graduate because she understood still that mm. education was going to be the great equalizer. It was education mm. that proved to be the lightning rod that was going to change the trajectory out of poverty. And I still believe that. 
and I believe that even more so now as there is an attack to get us out of classrooms because the great evil powers that be understand that as well. So I stay because my babies need me. It's really that simple. And until God calls me to another purpose and to a higher calling or to a different calling, I will continue to do that because unless there are black people in the room and black people sitting at the table and not just black skin, but black in their heart, black in their mind, black in their soul, think black, live black, act black, pray black, and learn black, we will be in peril because they are seeking to progeny through education. So it is imperative that conscious black folk are at the table and in the room and in those spaces, um, mm-hmm. speaking truth to power and shining a light in dark places. So that's why I do what I do. Yes, ma'am. I appreciate that, sister. So my dear sister, Okaya Kaur, that same question to you. You know, when did you start teaching and why do you teach? For me, I knew I was going to be a teacher from when I was in kindergarten. You know, I think a lot of people say this, but it was like, yeah, this is what I knew because, I mean, I come from a, a long history of educators on my, on my mom's side, you know, aunts and uncles who were not just educators, but were also organizers in the community in North New Jersey, right? So my construct of an educator is always the construct of an educator who is a teacher in the classroom and also an organizer within the community. So that's the way I walked into the classroom. That's the way I entered. There was no other way around being a teacher unless I was also an organizer, right? So it just didn't make sense that someone would be in school, you know, teach from eight to three and then leave and go home. That didn't make sense to me. You know, I have my uncle, Harry Willer, who was known and written about during the 60s after the Newark uprising for helping to bring the community back together, right? Who was a classroom teacher? (laughs) So that was the construct that I had, you know, what it meant to be a teacher. I knew going in, I was taking all the courses I needed. I remember, and I wasn't telling my parents, like, nothing. My dad didn't know. And my dad actually, too, before he even came to this, my dad is from Ghana, my mom's African-American. But before he came to this country, he was actually going to the teacher's college in Ghana at Cape Coast. And he and his friends got kicked out for refusing and protesting against this test that they were being forced to take. And they were pushing back against that. Um, so, but like, that's mm. the history of who I come mm. from, right? It was kind of in my blood that this is what I was going to be doing. And I was also going to be organizing. Mm. And I was also going to be pushing back. And I was also going to be doing that work. Uh, so there was no other path. And so I live and breathe teaching and education. Mm. And having grown up in Newark and seeing what's happening in the community with our school and just observing that, like being not only you know, being directly impacted by it, but also seeing it after I'm done and gone, seeing it happening to next generations beyond, right? This is like a nonstop, ongoing, ongoing assault yeah. on black communities and black environments, yeah. right? And mm. it was no other way. I no longer in the classroom, and that also is because of just another way of how we see black life being attacked, black existence, black teachers. Oftentimes, we do come into spaces with the sensibilities that are truly dedicated and built in black and understanding our existence and wanting to teach our children that you're also coming up against a system that doesn't want them to know this, right? And so mm. for doing that kind of work, it is important that we also do it from a, as a collective where we have support. But, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a educator who's been pushed out, who was pushed mm. out because of the, the work that I was doing. Um, yes, and so it's important for us to understand 
how that also plays into our experience. experiences, not changing it, but also understanding that this is how we were impacted, right? So it's not just, okay, yeah, they're, 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 they're pushing us out because they don't want us there at all, period, right? And so how do we, as community, how do we get the community to change the, the direction of, because, you know, it's really, you're pushing up against systems of dominance, you're pushing up against the establishment, and so how do you force them to be accountable and say, hey, no, we're no longer going to allow this. These are our teachers, and we love them. And so I teach because I see that it's important for our collective well-being and our collective up uplift. Yes, um, I don't see it any other way. There's no other way. I'm not sure if I would say that it's the solution to poverty. I would say that, you know, we we know that, you know, public education since Johnson, what is Lyndon B. Johnson said that he was using, you know, this was going to fix, you know, um, education was going to fix poverty, but, you know, we're not, poverty is a, is a result, a direct result of capitalism. There's a small group of people hoarding all the resources and how that trickles down in so many different layers all the way down to the classroom, right? There are people who hoard resources and prevent black, poor, brown folks from being able to gain access to those resources. So for me, that's the work that I'm doing. It's raising awareness to that. Um, now, as a, as a doc student who is studying what, what's the impact, how are black educators impacted? What are their experiences like once they're even in the classroom, too? So we have to also be aware of all those things. So that's it. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And now... You know, I appreciate both of you, and I wanted you all to be on because I know your work, I know your heart, uh, I know your courage, and I, and I wanted our listeners to talk to you today, get a chance to really learn from you. And so I'm going to do something real quick. I'm going to throw out some statistics just around the state of Black teaching in the United States. Now, I want you all to understand, in the Journey for Justice Alliance... We do not call this the loss of black teachers. We call it a purge. You know, when we look at black cities around the country and the rapid decline in, in black population in these cities, it is not a migration, which is the revisionist history that they told when our ancestors evacuated the South. It was not a migration we evacuated. The same thing today. Our neighborhoods are not being gentrified. We are being purged from American cities. And so I'm going to highlight three cities that reflect what's happening to black people, but also what's happening to black teachers. So here's what we know across the country, that about 15 to 17% of students are black in public schools, but over 50% of the students in schools are students of color, but 80% of the teaching force is white. We know that colleges of ed around the country are in the single digits in regards to the numbers of black teachers that are being produced. So, for example, colleges of ed in the state of Illinois average about 4% of their college of ed graduates being black teachers, about 6% being Latino. And we know that black teachers are leaving the system at rates higher than any other group. But here's a little history. In the year 2000, in the city of Chicago, where, where me and Tara are from, 44% of the teachers were black. Then, close to 50% of the students were black. Today, 39% of the students in Chicago are black, but only 19% of the teachers are black. I'll say that again. In 2000, 44% of the teachers were black. Today, less than 20 years later, 19% of the teachers are black. In, in Minneapolis, 38% of the students that attend MPS, Minneapolis Public Schools, are black. 
and only 5% of the teaching force is black. What? In Pittsburgh, all right, Steel City, and if folks who don't know, Pittsburgh has a hood, right? And, and uh, in Pittsburgh, 53% of the students in public schools are black. 13% of the teachers are black. Now, to anybody that might be sneaking on our podcast in the charter movement, you don't get away either because it's even worse in charter school. I'll give you one example. Let's look at Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh, 62 was roughly 63% of the students are black, and only 6.7% of the teachers are black. And that data harmonizes with what's going on around the country. I would also like to say to you, before we go any further, that in Chicago, in the year 2000, black people were 53% of the population. Today, today, according to census data, we are 29% of the city of Chicago. Huh. Right? Cities like New Orleans, where pre-Hurricane Katrina, New Orleans was about 67% black. And today, black people in New Orleans make up about 47% of the population. We can see this dynamic happening all over the country. So in regards to the loss of black teachers, sisters, what does that data say to you? It says to me that as America began to lose industry, meaning America had sold off, in large part, its industry, you know, with the NAFTA agreement, and as they saw the decline of major factories and places that their children would actually be working and taking over, America started thinking about where do we have industry? Where will our children be able to be gainfully employed, have benefits, and live a comfortable middle-class lifestyle, even as they continue to push out the middle class? But when they make that assertion, they're pushing out the black middle class, and that's with public sector work. So I begin to see an influx of white teachers in the late 90s, early 2000s, and numbers that I had never seen white people go into education. Mm -hmm. So what industry does America have now? Public education, charter schools, which is also white, and prisons. And I contend that if we really followed the money, you would see that the same people are holding the purse strings to those entities. So as much as it, it had to do with uh, purging black teachers, it also had to do with securing securing a future for their own kids. And mm -hmm. the sad thing about it and what makes it possible in the way that those numbers play out that you just recounted those despicable statistics is that our people don't see anything wrong with it. And that's the problem. So unless you come from like a conscious background, you look around the building and you like, excuse me, where are the black teachers? And why is it okay for my child to go from pre-K to 12th grade and never interact with a black person who is not ancillary staff, like a security guard or the janitor or the lunchroom lady, or maybe a paraprofessional? Why is that okay that it's the paraprofessionals, but not the teachers who are black in often cases? Because that's the push out, that's the purge. And it's to make space for their young, white, transient children to have gainful employment and live in the city. Teachers, your young white transient teachers, right? Yeah, the young white transient yes. teachers. Yes, ma'am. To have gainful employment. Yes, ma'am. I'm going to say that when I listen to the data, and then when I look at just all the other ways how black life is being attacked, black water, black mamas, black prenatal mamas, black postnatal mm. mamas, 
black daddy, you know, so when I look at all of the black students, black educators, there is a systematic disappearing of black people is what's happening yep. here. Yeah. It's a way to systematically disappear. We're being like the Native American. Yes. An attempt to, right? So and it's through the policies, it's through the practices, it's through the everything is working in concert with each other. So it's it's through the marketing. Yep. So this is the reason why we've got lead in our water. This is the reason why our communities are being depleted. This is the reason why they're being deprived of resources, intentionally and institutionally deprived of resources so that we in in the end disappear, right? Because this nation was always created on the foundation of making a white nation. That was what it was always. Right. It was through the disappearing of indigenous folks, through the enslavement of black folks so they could build this nation up so they could be a white nation. So it's by no surprise that our black communities, our black cities, our black students, our black educators, when we don't see them and the numbers in which they should, while it looks like and it appears that we're decreasing, right? And through every if you look at every institution, every industry in this nation, you'll see that black is on the bottom, further being pushed down, white always on the top. Indigenous people being attempted to be erased, right? Completely erased. And it comes to this idea that that certain people are not needed, right, in society, right? Where they're not valued, they're not seen. And our schools are just a reflection of the rest of that. So it's no, it's a macrocosm, exactly. It's no surprise, although I am shocked. Like, I, I was like, wow, wow. Like, I'm like, the numbers I had not heard in terms of, like, Chicago, I didn't realize how white it was becoming. <laughs> um, and so, but, it, 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 but if you see it, the pattern that we've seen in this nation consistently, where there is a disappearing of black people and indigenous people from this land, black and brown folks from this land, so that this country can be, or or give up the appearance of being a white nation. But I was going to also say that poor white folks are being affected by this too as well. Yeah. But because yeah. they're, but, but because poor. it looks like we're only being affected, it appears that they're not being affected. So they they're being blinded by this, but not seeing how really it's about creating and keeping a, a nation for the elite. Yeah, and because this level of racism that's experienced in this country is akin to mental illness, you so stuck on the fact that you white, you don't realize in West Virginia that they're killing you too. That's right. Because that's you're right. white and poor, therefore expendable. So as much as this is about race, which we know it's always about race, and I love the sister's explanation of America always wants to be a white nation. Um, Americans are mad now. Part of they mad now because we still ain't dead. They're just like, damn, why y'all not white? Why, why won't y'all die? We've mm. done everything, yeah. um, every diabolical thing that we can do to a race of people, much like the Native Americans, and still y'all will not die. But... They are mounting assaults, and they are mounting assaults in all of the ways that the sister just pointed out. Every day. The other thing is, too, we actually are the moral compass of this nation, too, as well. Yeah. So there's a, um, there's a, um, the, the con, they have this, um, what they call this mythical bird. It's not a myth, but it's, they call it the Santrofi Anoma. And the, the Santrofi Anoma, they, it's also called the Dilemma Bird. And they call it the Dilemma Bird is because it speaks convicting truth. 
it actually exposes the immoralities, the injustices of the nation. And so they like it for the fact that it's a beautiful bird and that it helps create and helps innovate and it helps design and helps do a lot of great things, but they hate it because it speaks truth and it holds them accountable to the injustices. And I think for us as black people, we are equivalent to the central feet on the map that um, mm. the can have. Teach. So I think what you all laid out is powerful. I do just, uh, Tara, a polite pushback on one thing. I do believe, just based on my experience, that people care. I've had tons of teachers, like, how come ain't no black teachers in the classroom? Why are all these white people teaching my kids? The issue that in, a, in a, lot, a lot of places is that we don't know what to do about it. We ain't never had power, so we don't know how to speak power to power. And so it's just like you don't like the liquor store owner to talk to you like you're crazy. But what you going to do about it? And I think that is a lot of what our work is. The reason we want to lift this issue up today is because just like there is a move in this country to stop school closings and to push for community schools, and with the advent of Black Lives Matter School Week and, and initiatives like Grow Your Own Teachers, we have to begin to teach the artistic science of community organizing to those who have the stomach to do it. Because it ain't for everybody. Because Sometimes that water can Back. get real deep. It can get real deep, Back. right? Back. And so we have to begin to teach the artistic science of community organizing so that our, in our communities, we understand how to speak power to power. Now, you all laid some stuff out and inspired me to do a little on-the-ground uh, research while you all were talking. And I, and I wouldn't have done this if you all wouldn't have been teaching. I just want people to hear this because... What some people would do is dismiss what these sisters are saying is militant. It's not militant. It's, it is called clear, honest analysis. What is happening in the United States is that all of our basic quality of life institutions, the United Nations says that the five basic institutions in the community is food production and delivery systems. I want y'all to hear me. Food production and delivery systems. And we know that in many of our communities, food deserts is a way yep. of life. Education, you know, we're talking about that now. Housing, right? Yeah, and, and we critical. See, we see what's happening with affordable housing around the country. Healthcare and having access to quality healthcare. In Chicago, young people had to risk their lives fighting the University of Chicago to finally win a trauma center because young people or people that were being hurt in this, on the south side of Chicago were dying because it would take them 30 minutes to get to a trauma care center to a trauma hospital. And young people won that by pushing and fighting and organizing against the University of Chicago. And finally, clothing. Those are the five basic institutions. And it ain't complicated. As African proverbs say, the truth is simple. If it's complicated, it's a lot. If you want to build a community, you invest in those basic quality of life institutions. If you want yep. to kill a community, you starve. You starve it. And what's Started. happening right now is, is that our basic quality of life institutions are being starved because we are not the population that is desired. So if you ask yourself, well, why? Because I think that the sister's analysis around the fact that this is about race, but it's also about greed and class, right? It's also about the elite. I just want y'all to hear something. These are the American companies that profit off prison labor, which means that they do one of a few things. Either they actually invest in the prisons as an institution, as a private prison, 
like invest in, in their pitching boards, or they actually have people making products on these prisons. Whole Foods, McDonald's, Walmart, Victoria's Secret, AT&T, BP, British Petroleum, yeah. right? Bank of yeah. America, Bayer, Cargill, Caterpillar, yeah. Chevron, wow. Chrysler, Costco. And that pissed me off because I like Costco. John Deere, <laughs> Eli yeah. Lilly and Company, Exxon Mobil, wow. GlaxoSmith and Klein, Johnson and Johnson, Kmart, Coach Industries, Merck, Microsoft, Motorola, Nintendo, Pfizer, Procter and Gamble, Pepsi, Conagra Foods, Shell, Starbucks, UPS, Verizon, wow. Wendy's. I can go on. The point I'm making because it sounds like it would be a shorter list to say who is it. That's right. The piece <laughs> is the destruction of our lives is big business. But Black Lives has always been big business in this country. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely, absolutely. So despite how disheartening this stuff is. You know, Tyra said, we're still here. And what we know in our history is that there is always a resistance. There's always a resistance. Yeah. And today, you know, thank yeah. the creator that our lives have been guided, but we are part of that resistance. And the work is to begin to, one, help develop the type of people that can wage struggle. Like if I say community organizing sounds easy to you have to do it. Right. And the second piece is how do we leave the next generation something more than problems? And we've got a few minutes left. So if you all could please uh, be concise, but please lay it out. Okayakwa, I would like you to just share a little bit about Black Lives Matter at School Week and what that work is looking like. Yeah, so Black Lives Matter at School Week of Action is always, it's part of a national organizing effort started by educators, parents, community folks. There was an event that took place in Seattle where teachers were going to wear Black Lives Matter shirts and community some folks were pushing back against it, but and the community came in support. And so what Philly educators did was decided to do a full week rooted around the principles of the movement for Black Lives, their 13 principles which also are reflective of the uh, Black Panthers point system, 13.8. And so we are organizing around a list of four demands, which is to increase and, you know, replace counselors with cops. I mean, sorry, but cops with replace. We want counselors. We don't want no cops. I was about to be like, oh, God, what's going on now? All right, go ahead, sis. <laughs> it's all good. We want, we want cops out of the schools. Go ahead, sis. We want them out of the school. We want to also have curriculum that is centering Black studies, Black lives, ethnic studies. We want hire more Black teachers so we understand the importance of that and then also restorative practices in school. Um, and I want to quickly just kind of talk and, and on the, the point on the hiring of black teachers. I do want to talk about the study that was done a couple of years ago, and they were looking at whether or not black teachers were being hired, what was happening. And the rhetoric is they're not going into the teaching profession or they're not being recruited by colleges, right? And so what they found actually was in this particular study was that not only were the teachers not being hired, but they were actually applying. So it wasn't like they were not applying for the job. They were applying in the numbers that were representative to the ratio that represented the community. 
However, they were not being hired in that way. And it did not look the same way for other teachers of color. So I wanna highlight this because when we often clump the narrative has now become like whenever we start talking about, oh, let's hire more black teachers, the people say, oh, let's do teachers of color. And I'm not no, saying that everyone's not and not everyone's not needed, but what I'm explaining here in this research was even when black teachers are applying at the numbers that are represent that they represent, they're not being as hired at that number. However, Jeez. every other teacher of color is. Asian Americans, if they're if they're applying at six percent, they're being hired at six percent. Latinx folks, if they're applying at seven percent, they're being hired at that much. For black people, if they're applying, let's say it's you know twelve percent, they're being hired at maybe less than that, right? Mm. That shows that there's a again, there's a systematic and institutional disappearing of black people from even have gaining access, right? Even gaining access and opportunity, um, and that's why it's it's important and clear that when we say when we say black, and we're not saying teachers, we're not clumping us all together, yes, is we need to understand why other people may not be going in. And yes, we're all needed, because I think everybody, we, in order for us to be a truly anti-racist society, we do need a multicultural society that understands all of these things, that, that understands how all of these systems of oppression impact all of us, right? Particularly how black folks are impacted, right? And so... I know I wanted to keep it short, so that's it. No, no, thank you, sister. Mm -hmm. Yes, ma'am. And, and I, I'm, I'm asking people that are listening, don't fight what you're hearing, man. Understand what you're hearing. Understand, that sister just said that black teachers are applying to be hired, and other teachers of color are applying to be hired at the rate in which the that reflects the student population. And black teachers are doing the same, but black teachers are not being hired. America's biggest yeah. evil, America's biggest evil family has been a psychopathic hatred and extermination of Native American people and a psychopathic hatred of black people. You want to say, what do you mean psychopathic? Remember that a psychotic, you can tell that a psychotic is disturbed when they walk down the street. But a psychopath looks normal. A psychopath can raise a family. A psychopath can run organizations. A psychopath can be a president. A psychopath can be a senator, a doctor, a lawyer. But there's a part of their behavior where right and wrong don't matter. They don't care about right and wrong. And for race in America, America is psychopathic. And I want to encourage folks that have not read this book to please read The Psychopathic Racist Personality by the late, great Dr. Bobby Wright. Read that book, all of 15 pages but the most profound 15 pages I've ever read in my life that explains the psychopathic nature of how race is addressed in this country. That's why, you know, a police officer kid gunned down a 12-year-old in Cleveland and people try to come up with reasons why he deserved it. This is why a police officer can murder Rakia Boyd in, play, in, in cold blood and the system mobilizes to protect this officer. This is why a police officer can shoot, shoot Laquan McDonald 16, just pump 16 bullets into a boy and then mobilize to cover it up. And then a former mayor, a former mayor of this city, a former mayor, the former chief of staff to the White House, actually cover it up so that he can actually keep his damn job. Excuse my language. I want, I just, I don't want us to think yeah. that these things are not connected. You yeah. know, to deny people housing, to deny food production and delivery systems, to deny yeah. education opportunities, to justify the murder and the slaughter of human beings. 
is psychopathic. So I, I appreciate you sisters for laying out, you know, and just teaching the way you all are teaching yeah. this morning. Now, and one last thing I want to ask, because well, I think this is also nuanced and a little bit nuanced. In this particular study, they also found that it wasn't just white principals that were not hiring the black teachers. They also found that black principals were also not hiring at the rates in which they were applying. So this this speaks to it's a little bit more nuanced when we talk about how we as also people of color can uphold systems of oppression and project it to on our own people, right? So if we don't understand how we are internalizing these messages to as well, we end up supporting and protecting the system and helping Absolutely. it move in the way that. There's a, a saying okay. that we say, and we say that, you know, racism is not an opinion. It's not, mm -hmm. you know, something you can think your way in and out of. It's like an incurable disease. Yeah. That the only way that we will beat racism is if we all say, okay, I've got it. If you're white, assume that you're racist. If you're mm -hmm. black, yep. assume that you've been impacted by internalized racism. Assume that we yep. suffer Absolutely. from it. All of us. Mm -hmm. I don't care how all conscious we think we are. All of us. Yep. And then we struggle against it until we yep. struggle against it to the point where a cure is actually possible. Yep. But Absolutely. as long as we think we're progressive. You're white. You're progressive, so you're not racist. But you squash yep. the voice. You you you, you progressive <laughs> until it comes yep. to independent black leadership, or yep. you know you're black and you figure, oh, well, I'm successful. You know, I'm conscious. So you know, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I look through my third eye. I haven't been impacted by racism. That's bullcrap. Yep. We struggle every day to destroy that Negro inside of us and to let that um, African yep. breathe. Every day. Yep, yep, every day. Yep. Every day. So look, you all have been teaching too hard and laying it out. Tara, I want you to close us out, sister. If you can explain a little bit about something that you all are doing as a union now where you are bargaining for the common good. Right now as we're recording this, the Chicago Teachers Union is on strike. And their demands are very unconventional. They are not just striking over class size, things that you would expect, right? Pay. That were, and teachers deserve to be paid. But they're also striking on key issues, like they're calling for 75 sustainable community schools. They're calling for uh, affordable housing around those sustainable community schools so that parents, families, and teachers can live in the neighborhoods in which they go to school and teach. They're also calling for a restorative justice practitioner in every school, a school nurse in every school. But they're also calling for a pipeline for black teachers and also support of the Grow Your Own Teachers Initiative. And I want you to break that down a little bit for us, sister, just so that folks understand what that means. Okay, so uh, to the best of my ability, but let me adjust one thing and then we'll move on. Thank you for your gentle pushback because I would hate to um, leave this broadcast and, and it, is, it gave even any appearance that I was saying that because we don't know or because we don't, we accept these things as they are, that it's okay. It's not okay. And I, I'm inclined to agree with what you said. We know when we walk into these school buildings and when we walk into communities, our people know that something is wrong. More often than not, they A, don't know what to do and don't feel like they have a choice. So that's, that's the problem. It. That's it. And so, so much more work and uh, has to be done around that. And you've got to raise up some brave people to have these conversations and to build capacity again in our people, because this is the hardest work you're going to ever do being born black in this country. 
because every day there's assault on your life and everybody's life that looks like you. You're in perpetual war and you're surviving of continued and sustained trauma. But about the work that we're doing, I am a proud member of the Chicago Teachers Union and we've changed the model of labor activism not only in the city of Chicago, but particularly with teachers across this country. And we've gone from a service model where we're just demanding bread and butter issues and expanded what bread and butter issues look like. So, yes, they look like wage and benefits because I'm not going to apologize for the salary that I deserve to make because I actually deserve to make more than that because comparable to teachers' education, we are still at the bottom of the totem pole for Mm -hmm. our salary and wages. Mm-hmm. I am going to fight for class size because class size matter. You cannot properly instruct 45 kindergartners or 42 kindergartners in a classroom with one teacher. That's just unconscionable. But mm-hmm. what I also find unconscionable is the, the same people that we're trying to petition and say, listen, this is good. We need these things to change because this is what's going to help us and help our classrooms and help our students. These are situations that their a their children are not in, and they're not going to put their children in. Uh, Lori Life would be screaming bloody murder if her child was in a classroom with forty five other or forty three other kindergarten. And for folks that don't know, Lori Lightfoot is the new mayor of Chicago. Is the new mayor and. I have a simple philosophy about all things, and what's good for your child is good for mine. I Mm. want for my neighbor the same thing I want for myself, and I conduct my life as such. And because this is such an integral part of who we are, that means that we're also fighting for affordable housing. We're also fighting for uh, living wage workers. We're also fighting for our paraprofessionals who more often than not are from the community and still live in the community, and their wages have not grown at all. And many of our paraprofessionals and our ancillary staff, who I personally believe is just the backbone of school buildings because they're there when we get there and they're there when Mm -hmm. we leave. They're from and of the community are making just barely enough to not be on public aid. Just barely enough for their children to not qualify for free or reduced lunch. In many cases, they do. So Mm -hmm. that's unconscionable. And and many of these uh, same staffers have gone back to school and improve their education, but their checks are not reflecting that movement. And so we're pressing CPS to give them raises. So if this was just about teachers getting a raise, they offered us 16% day one. We would have took that money and ran, but there are bigger, larger, more looming issues on the horizon and ones that we are dealing with on a regular basis that are just basically destroying the very fabric of public education. Mm-hmm. And those are the things that we are fighting for. A nurse in every building, a restorative justice person in every building, a school social worker in every building, a counselor yes, in every building. We have situations now in the city of Chicago where you have nurses that are stretched between four and five schools, which means mm-hmm. they can only come to your building for about three hours a day on a Friday, once a week. Yes, ma'am. We so- have children who are who we know are enduring very traumatic situations, but there's no one on the ground because school buildings are ground zero for everything that's happening in our communities. Every terrible thing that's happening in our community manifests itself in the school. Yeah, but think about this. Not only do we not have counselors, what we see happening in school districts around the country is that young people who need support you know, at, at different levels. Sometimes they need support because they're black and it's just, it's just rough out here. Sometimes they need support because, you know, they're they struggling. 
we see young mm-hmm. people like at Marshall High School on the west side of Chicago, young people assaulted by police yeah. officers in the school. Yeah, yep. and it was on video. Yeah, we have a situation in Benton Harbor, Michigan, just jumped off uh, less than two weeks ago, where this sister who had just gotten out of jail and had gone through a, a significant amount of trauma is brutally assaulted by a police officer in school, and she sprayed him with mace. And they're yeah. trying to criminalize the little sister. Which um, is why we need them out of our schools, because they yes, make ma'am. our schools an even more toxic environment than they already are. They yes, do ma'am. not provide safety or security. No. They are there to enforce a thinking of captivity and our oversight. Military. And militarism in our schools. So, sisters, let me say this. This is why the demands that the Chicago Teachers Union are making is so important. If anybody practices Kwanzaa, there's a principle that's celebrated during Kwanzaa called Kuumba, creativity. And Kuumba says, do all that we can in the way that we can in order to leave our communities more beautiful and beneficial than we inherited. So, in Chicago, we don't have an elected school board. So... What we have to do is do all we can in the way that we can. So if we have to put community demands in the teacher union's contract, so be it. If we have to do a hunger strike to stop a school from closing and to advance the model of sustainable community schools, so be it. If we have to shut down school board meetings and run them out the meeting, and if we have to chain ourselves outside the statue of the mayor's office in order to dominate the media cycle for a day, then so be it. We have to use whatever resources we can in order to leave our communities more beautiful and beneficial than we inherited it. And one of the demands in the CTU contract is support for Grow Your Own Teachers and to create a pipeline of black teachers. So whatever resource we have to use, it's like if somebody breaks in your house and it's you and your babies in your house and all you got around you, you see a plate on the table, you see a pool stick, you see you're gonna grab whatever you can grab to get that person about your house. So in other words, we will use whatever means necessary, whatever whatever resources available to make sure that we're providing resources and improving lives. So I want to just ask everybody to stay tuned. Black Lives Matter at School Week is coming up, but also you'll be hearing more about organized efforts to actually increase the number of black teachers in the classroom. In Minneapolis, they actually have a bill that they've tried to move through the state Senate. It didn't pass this year, but it moved and, and, and through the state legislature, calling for more black teachers in the classroom. You see innovative efforts happening all over the country. So people are on this issue. It's about uniting our forces. It's about uniting our forces and beginning to move in a way that's coordinated so that the issue is not don't close our school. The issue is we want a sustainable community school and put systems on the defensive. Why aren't there any black teachers in the classroom? Why are you teaching our children that black people aren't fit to lead? And put them on the defensive and come with policies that actually advance our cause. So I want to thank you, sisters, for being on. I love you both and respect you both and appreciate your work. Thank you so much. I hope everybody that's listening appreciates the lessons that you got from our sisters today. And as we get ready to close out uh, uh, this episode of On the Ground, the theme of our show is You Must Learn. And this song was done by one of the five greatest MCs to ever grab a microphone, the Blastmaster KRS-One. And in this song, he talks about how, you know, learning about black inventors, learning about black people that actually built civilizations before Columbus is not taught to us in school. 
but you can't depend nope. on that. You must learn. You must learn. Yeah. You must see you know, Black people out. that came after Columbus ain't taught in school. That's right. So if you want to struggle to be free, to, the things we have to do is this. We have to rebuild our sense of identity. A strong sense of identity leads to you having a strong sense of purpose, and that purpose determines what direction in which you move. Every living being, sisters and brothers, knows who they are, why they are, and what they must do to be who they are. Identity, purpose, and direction. So this song by the Blastmaster Keras One, You Must Learn, perfectly lays out what is not taught in our schools and why we need more conscious teachers that look just like our children uh, to be in the classrooms. All right? Unfortunately, in many cases, being oppressed people in this country and around the world, we tend not to know because that's the first thing that is assaulted is the sense of who we are, right? Yeah. And so yeah. if people can control who you are, they will control why you are. But we yeah. are much bigger. We are much greater than that. We are much more powerful than that. We are giants and that's the work of uh, teachers to help unlock that inside of our young people. So again, thank my sisters for joining. We'll talk to thank you all you. next week on the ground. It's called that Bible style that I speak to steal with facts and you'll never get weak in the heart. In fact, you'll start to illuminate knowledge to others in a song. Let me demonstrate the force of knowledge. Knowledge reigns supreme. The ignorant is ripped to smithereens. What do you mean when you say I'm rebellious? Because I don't accept everything that you're telling us. What are you selling us? The creator dwelling us. I sit in your unknown class while you're failing us. I failed to class design with your reasoning. You're trying to make me you by seasoning. Up my mind with CJ Run. See John walking a hardcore New York? Come on now, it's like a chocolate cow. It doesn't exist, no way, no how. It seems to me that in the school this ebony, African history should be pumped up steadily, but it's not. And this has got to stop. See spot run, run, get spot. Insulting to a black mentality, a black way of life, or a jet black family. So I include with one concern that you must learn. Yo, Chris. Hold up, D. Hold up, D. We're gonna see if they're really ready for this. Are y'all having fun tonight? I said, are y'all having fun tonight? I believe that if you're teaching history, deal with straight up facts, no mystery. Teach the student what needs to be taught. Cause black and white kids won't take shorts. When one doesn't know about the other one's culture, ignorance swoops down like a vulture. Cause you don't know that you ain't just a janitor. No one told you about Benjamin Banneker, a brilliant black man that invented the almanac. Can't you see what KRS 